Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Gail Straub. Gail is the executive director of the Empowerment Institute, which she co-founded in 1981. In this capacity, she's worked to empower thousands of people throughout the world. She's the author of numerous books, including, most recently, The Ashikan Way, Landscape's Path into Consciousness. She lives in the Hudson River Valley in New York, and we had a great conversation about her newest book. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Gail Straub. Gail, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Scott. Now, you've written several books. Your most recent is The Ashikan Way, Landscape's Path into Consciousness. And I, the first sentence uh, in the introduction really struck me. It's, I mean, first sentences can really set the tone for things. I, this is one of these sentences I wish I would have written. <laughs> Attention is, is form of devotion and, and a pathway to intimacy. And, you know, it seems like a lot of this book is a plea for uh, attentiveness. I mean, you're, I, I, it seems like it's a pitch for attentiveness because you do this daily walk and, and you are really present to what's present in front of you. Yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. I, I love that you went immediately into the first sentence, which we're, we're told as writers, the first sentence should be a kind of icon for the rest of the book. And it is about attention. It's about paying attention in the natural world. In this case, it's as, as you said, this is a series of 36 short essays that take place through the four seasons in this mountain valley where I live up, up here in the Catskills. But what I found, Scott, was that, you know, we're so obese with information and technological overload, me, me included. And the natural world is, I think, one of the most powerful places where we can go out, whether we're in a park, in a city, or a mountain valley, or a forest, whatever. And immediately that um, the mind that is overloaded and full of chatter and distraction begins to quiet. And so your very perceptive statement that the walks, the book, is really a a plea to pay attention, and I think also an invitation for those who have a natural affinity to to being outside, whatever that means to them, that that can be a kind of sanctuary in, in the days that we live in. Yeah, and you know, you you have this another great phrase here in, in the introduction or early on in the book it's it's interesting i just interviewed a guy recently stanley harawas is a theologian ethicist at duke university and i've heard him say that you know the great traditions you don't choose them they choose you and you say something oh. similar about high point you say you know i used to wonder as one might with certain close friends whether i chose high point as my familiar or if she chose me now after decades of full and fruitful friendship I feel that we've mutually chosen each other. It's interesting that you don't hear many people in modern life talk about mountain, a mountain or mountain range as, as a friend. And, mm. and that's just an interesting picture and, and is a familiar. Uh, and, and the mutuality that 
you describe. It's really intriguing. I, I've been thinking a lot about that, Scott. And there's there's a line from Wilke uh, where he says to us, there is no place at all that is not watching you. So this idea that you're bringing forward of a a mutual exchange in the natural world is something that I actually believe. And, you know, outside the West, in our indigenous cultures and in, in more ancient times, there wasn't this separation. Uh, indigenous peoples still feel that when we care for an aspect of the natural world, in this case, this mountain high point that <laughs> looms in front of my house um, for 36 years, is is like a familiar. And I began to feel, as I wrote the book, it was over the course of four years, I began to think more and more about this mutual exchange. And that if anyone brings this true attention that you spoke of a few moments ago to any aspect of the landscape, there actually is a, well, I'll go so far as to say a possibility for a conversation and a dialogue. And, you, you know, mystics and shamans and poets all, all talk about this. And for me, that, that seems very important, that part of the inspiration to to care for the earth in this time of, of dire climate change and so forth. My husband, by the way, is a passionate uh, climate change uh, activist. In, in these times where we're going through a lot of earth changes, perhaps it's a return to this mutual uh, sense of relationship that will help inspire us to care for the natural world. Um, I, I certainly hope that. And I also think you're pointing to well, one of the things I'm most proud of in the book is I think I've brought um, perhaps a more female sensibility to the literature of place. I mean, place-based books are common, as, as we both know, but the ones we know the most are mostly by men. The, the famous, uh, in, in, in my valley, John Burroughs, and of course, Emerson and Thoreau, and so forth. And I reread all that great literature as I was working on this book. I loved it, it was inspiring. But I felt this was an approach to the landscape, primarily through the mind. It, it, it stimulated my mind. And as a woman, it was perhaps more natural for me uh, to enter through the heart, through the emotions. And that's where I began to make this bridge between the outer landscape, a mountain, water, sky, the creatures, the forest, and what's going on in our interior landscape. So I'm, I'm, I feel very... Uh, I feel very good about that, that bridge that I made. And perhaps that goes back to your question of this mutual exchange and why I could feel High Point as a familiar. Yeah, and you know, you personify the mountain as a woman. And I'm really struck too by the, 
you you describe these eagles that you came across and these mother eagles that, that you say the, the 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 it's like for over a month right the 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 male eagle f- brings her food fit for a queen fish and fresh fish and, and it's just very and then there's another passage where you talk about how you know your mother was an observant catholic and even though that's not where you look at yourself now that you do pray the rosary and 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 you imagine mother mary there with the mountain and it's just at some point i you know i can't tell if mary is the mountain the mountain is mary i mean it's this it's this beautiful image of, of uh yeah these these great feminine and maternal images uh embedded mm. in the landscape are beautiful. Thank you. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people have responded to that aspect where, it, in my case, my mother was v- very devout. Um, my father was an atheist. That's an interesting, <laughs> another conversation. But um, we were raised Catholic, uh, uh, very traditionally, in, in the 1950s. And... Um, you know, then I'm a I'm a I'm a kid of the '60s, and yeah, off yeah you I said went. you went and left and left the church, left the Catholic Church for the Church of you know, to study Marxism and to go to the Church of Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. <laughs> and yeah, that's great. It's that's true. great. <laughs> but then, you know, now I'm approaching seventy, actually, and I've been living in this valley for thirty six years, and it's so true that this mountain valley has become my church. And my mother went to mass almost every day. Well, I walk in this valley every day. I pray the rosary. I pray for those in need. Um, As you so beautifully noted, I feel Mother Mary, very close to the Mother Mary. And I feel her in the land. I feel her in the mountains. I feel her in the water. And when I'm in need of solace, I'll pray the rosary. I'll sit down there in this in this beautiful uh, Ashokan way where I'm walking, and they're the same energy, Scott. It's a a protective, nourishing, enlarging, hopeful energy that takes me out of my small bounded ego, if you wish, and. That passage, a a, a lot of people, maybe particularly women because of the mother-daughter thing, but they've said that really helped me because maybe they were raised as a devout Jew or a devout Muslim or a devout whatever, and they've left that tradition and found perhaps solace uh, in the natural world. But I think my mother's faith is in me. That, that's what was quite important in that entry, that everything she imprinted in me in those years and years of Sunday Mass and uh, si- sitting by her side, uh, and I still love the Mass, by the way. Um, I, when I was young, it was still uh, given in Latin, which I found very beautiful. So I think that opens a possibility for people that faith, if one has left the faith of our childhood, but one is still searching deeply, authentically to be uh, a person of faith, that the landscape can be a wonderful bridge. Yeah, it's interesting because you do describe yourself as a person of faith several times in the book and you talk about having an object of faith and and is is the object of that faith this sort of 
transcendence that you feel around you as you walk mm. the Ashokan Way? It's, it's a beautiful question. I I have a daily uh, Vipassana practice. Uh, it's a, a meditation practice, just following the breath. And I've had that for 35 years, and it's um, it's critical to my equanimity and who I am and how I approach the world. But again, that practice, which happens to be a Buddhist practice, is very objective. And I found that the land, again, maybe this is um, more the feminine speaking here, that the land was more personal. My meditation practice is objective. Its its uh, strength is in its objectivity. But when I'm on the land, I feel a deep relational, emotional connection. And maybe I've got the best of both worlds, mm. Scott. I have this uh, practice, which is calming the mind, but I also have this intimate uh, daily practice in the land, which involves the Mother Mary and the mountains. And so maybe we have a kind of balance there of the archetypal masculine and feminine. The objective and the personal. Yeah, and you know, I, you know, I'm struck by the, the way you describe faith and spirituality. And I wonder is is our culture a place where that kind of faith, whether in in traditional religion, religious context, or in the natural world, where that's just tough to cultivate because it, it, it we're we're I mean, as you said, we're mm. we, we're obese with information and overload, and yet knowledge isn't always wisdom. I, you know, and it, it seems that that what you cultivate is in different times past would not there there might not have had to be as much intentionality to cultivate it whereas now i mean you've got it i mean to to have the presence and practice yeah. you have just in a simple thing like a war, like a daily walk I mean, that's yeah. a herculean effort in lots of parts <laughs> of late modern culture right you're you're right it, it it's we're, we're we're obese with information but we're hungry ghosts and um, I think the, there's one entry where I talk about um, landscape, the arts, and spiritual practice as a, a possible trilogy that can break the modern-day trance. Because uh, you're right. Yeah, because um, you say this, meet your strange bedfellow, Trinity, technology. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think they could cozy up, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I think that um, uh, the reason I chose those three, what, what I think they have in common is so each of them. So if you're climbing a mountain or painting a watercolor or, or sitting in any spiritual practice from any any of the great traditions, your small mind, your ego loosens and you you. You enter something larger. Linear, linear time uh, is less important. You slow down. All, all the things we don't have in modern life. And so I felt, and, and I feel we need them. To your point, it's a Herculean effort to leave the speed and overload and um, constant crowding of the mind but may maybe I'm old-fashioned. I probably am. I do feel our sense of meaning 
And the place we go to in crisis, so an illness, a death, a divorce, a loss of a job, those things that we all encounter, it's inevitable, the, the, the full catastrophe, so to speak. We need, where do we go in those times when we're facing something uh, difficult, when we're, when we're suffering? And for me, the arts, it could be anything, music, writing, poetry, what, whatever a person chooses, any spiritual practice from any tradition, and then the natural world. Those three are kind of sanctuaries, havens we can take our little boat into and get a, get a moment to catch our breath. Yeah, you describe in the book, uh, I think it was around Thanksgiving, or, or no, it was, it was Easter Sunday, where you had a, a, a sort of sacred circle, your friends come, and, and, they sh- and you share yes. high points and low points in life and, and, and just practice together. Yeah. And it's interesting because you compare the friendship that the mountains offer you and, and, and that the Ashikan Way offers you. With the friends, with what your friends in the sacred circle offer you, it was really striking to me that 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 these are that there's one sort of uh, human set of friends, and then there's this friend in nature that is also where you take your highs and your lows, and and you know where you reflect on your your own life. It, they're both communities. One is a, to your exact point. One is a human community. We've been meeting for 25 years now, and one is a a community of creatures and forest and water and and mountains. But both are safe havens. Both um, are communities that, shall I say, can witness life without judgment. So when we're there in this little little sacred community that we've formed over the years, uh, we listen. We we we've we've witnessed a great span of life over these 25 years from very difficult things, cancer and Parkinson's and very wonderful things. And again, this full catastrophe of, of life, but we witness it as best we can without judgment. And I think that's one of the greatest unsung, um, solaces of, of the landscape. It doesn't judge. It's, you know, it's there. It's been there long before us. It'll be there long after you and I are gone. And it's a kind of profound constancy, if if you wish. But I do, you're right, Scott, I do experience them both as, as communities. Yeah, and you say that, that both the land and the sacred circle connect me to something larger. I love this phrase, allowing me to release my contracted small self. And return to a more expanded, compassionate self. I, I love that the contracted. I like the balled up, like emotional knots or like a cramp, and into this, you know, this sort of expanded self, and 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 being able to have compassion for others and for yourself. Uh, in this other passage where you talk about yourself in relationship to nature, I love you say that. You talk about how there's these replenishing rains and terrifying devastation, all these things in nature that, you know, it's both life giving and, and, you know, and, 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 and can be also destructive. And you say that this is you. I too am compassionate and cruel. 
nurturing and destructive, warm and cold, light and dark. I too am dying and being reborn through my season. So I, I, that's a beautiful, like the, there's a beautiful seeing of who you are in, in, in non-judgmentally, like seeing yourself, the whole picture, the good, the bad, the ugly, warts, and, and not judging it, yeah. and seeing mm-hmm. coming to that revelation through your experience in the, on the Ashkenazi way. Yeah, I think the I've always been deeply attracted to to opposites, and and you see, I'm I I have a lot of. Um, a lot of the entries are about that. And Master Dogon has been a, a great inspiration to me. And all his writing on the natural world is, uh, I think, a eloquent attempt to show the reconciliation of opposites. So when I started writing, I became a lot more aware of that. And every day, well, it seems so obvious, there's, you know, dawn and dusk and day and night and then the seasons themselves are kind of now we're moving into spring and it's birth but then we get to late autumn and death is there um i tell this short story of the little beautiful goslings and one day there it's a calm it's calm on the ashokan and then a day later, it's incredibly t- turbulent, and it's a line of like like eight of them, and one of them just goes down. It's it's all over, and the the the, the geese, which are powerful presences, just just go on. It's a very almost cold sensation. The sensation that nature is um, is very objective, and um, that that I found incredibly instructive. That um you know birth and death are natural dark is natural there's there's compassion when you see the mother geese um sort of cradling them and caring for them but then when it's turbulent and the little one can't keep up you know she that's just tough it's just life so that instructed me it, it it always has instructed me. I, I say, and when I was a kid, I was a tomboy, and I spent all my days out in the Brandywine River Valley near where you are. But it's as I've gotten older, I guess, because of course you're you're closer to death. You begin to see how instructive that is, and how much solace it offers. That it's just natural. It's a, it's a passing of the seasons. So. Um, I think the the natural world is the great teacher of, of opposites. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, 
any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, and Andrew Stravitz. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, you also tell a story of, a, of you saw this crow die. And these crows gathered around it and almost seemed to have a funeral for it. I mean, they stopped. I, I mean, this is, you know, contrasting to the geese where they just go on, the, these crows stopped and, and, and grieved their, their comrade. That was extraordinary. And uh, probably some of your listeners are aware that. So I saw this. It was, you know, crows are... I consider them the most ordinary of creatures. I wouldn't pay attention like an eagle or a hawk or a blue heron. But one day there were, it was as if this green field was a blanket of shimmering black. And the sound was raucous, like this calling. There were thousands of them. I stopped, I watched. It was compelling, it was mesmerizing. And then I had read this article on animal empathy. And lo and behold, uh, there's a lot of research that these, quote, ordinary creatures, these crows, have extraordinarily elaborate uh, rituals. When, when a crow dies, they gather. There's a certain sound that comes like a like a dir- dirge, like a funeral dirge. And then they bring sticks to surround the dead. And then they grow silent as if they're meditating with the dead. It, it was kind of a profound experience. And the door I took on that particular essay was that something so ordinary is really Truly, when we're awake, when we're present, can also be extraordinary, including people we think we've known, um, you know, friends where they're telling you their story yet again, but actually they're telling you their story at another level of courage. So the crows were like a teacher of how the ordinary, if, if we're present, if we're paying attention, how the ordinary can become extraordinary. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic writer, talks about this in his book, Orthodoxy. He says that, you know, kids, you take a little kid to the zoo, it's a fairy tale for them because they don't know, they don't think there just should be elephants or cheetahs or, right. you know, like they, they, everything looks like Alice in Wonderland to them. And then, you know, take a 14 year old to the zoo and you're like, you know, they're on their phones. Yeah. They really, you know, it's, and I wonder, like, you seem to have cultivated childlikeness on the walks. Which is different than childishness. I think like childlikeness, where there's a sense of wonder. And that, I mean, you, you, you seem to look at the landscape like a child would. That's very perceptive. There's a line from Annie Dillard's, uh, you know, iconic um, 
Creek, Creek, the uh, Pilgrim at uh, what? What's her Pulitzer Prize winning book? Uh, anyway, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Something Creek. Uh, she says, "I go out and I expect to be surprised," and that phrase is is very much the I think this beginner's mind, this consciousness that you're referring to. That's the opposite of the modern day jaded malaise, seen everything, done that, been there. Um, And that mantra of going out and expecting to be surprised, I think is, it it really informed me, I think. And and then I was, I was surprised. You also say that that, that walking in the Ashkin way gives you this sense of like, insignificance on one level and tremendous significance on the other you like you feel small and big at the same time that you know that that with the awesome just power and force of nature and then yet also you feel lifted up into it i think about you know marva dawn's one writer has said that we we technologize our intimacy and intimize our technology and i you know when when my computer says oh hi scott this is for you you know the like I don't feel more significant. <laughs> you know, like, like what you describe seems in contrast with so much of this like intimized technology, which really I think actually ironically makes you feel less significant. This is, I think, uh, such an important conversation and and such a large one. So you and I both know that we we want technology. For for example, I'm a global activist. Without technology. I couldn't be in connection with the amazing people I'm working with all over the world. But this question of how do we know when the technology is is robbing or stealing an aspect of our humanity, or um, I, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just presenting it as a, as a fruitful inquiry. Or how do we know when it's it's leading to a place that isn't sustainable and that doesn't help us in those tough times and your idea that when we encounter nature in a genuine way we become the right size uh, what i mean by that is we kind of feel our size in the larger universe and it actually it's a beautiful paradox it actually strengthens us. I think it gives us strength and equanimity. At the same time, we we feel we're small and we're part of something so much bigger. I think it tends to wake us up. I think it tends to put our heads on in a good way. Um, I think art does that. I think great literature does that. I think a, a truly... Um, Again, a genuine spiritual encounter, be it in any of the great traditions, can, can do that. Um, and I, I do think those are kinds of endangered species, Scott. I think silence is an endangered species, and that's something you you get in the landscape. It, it, you write about an experience where you you say you go to New York pretty regularly because you don't live far from New York City and and how you're in there one day for brunch in the theater with friends and you say that I I saw more people in three blocks than I'd often (laughs) see in an entire month in the rural place I live and then also in the beginning the book you talk about this elegant beauty of of the Ashkenazi because it was artificial I mean it was constructed 
for a waterway right. for for New York City, right. and lots of people were displaced, and yeah. and yeah. their land was taken and with without really adequate compensation in many instances. And so you talk about this, it's like the agony and the ecstasy here, as you see its beauty, right? And I love that you said this elegant beauty, because there's, there's, there's also some haunting things there. You know, I, I'm so glad you, you brought that up, because I think that, and in, in, in the book, I talk about my good friend, the, the painter, Kate McLaughlin, who's, who gave the beautiful cover and the, and the prints in the book. So she's, uh, I've been here 36 years. She has lived, she's fifth generation in this valley. And her families, who were farmers, all lost their homes. The, so the Ashokan was built at this fascinating juncture when there was a famine and a drought. People didn't have enough water in New York City. And her Irish relatives lived in New York City and needed the water. And then the other half of her relatives were farmers who lost their entire land, their farms. They'd farmed for generations so they could build this uh, massive, one of the largest um, man-made uh, dams. So this, and, and actually, Scott, at a certain point, maybe it was 20 years ago, there was such a, a drought here, you could walk around, there was no water in the Ashokan, you could walk around on the old streets. So it's something very real, where the ghosts and the stories still seep through this beauty. It's a beauty born of tragedy. And I think that's I, I deeply believe that's part of why it's so evocative, is that whether we can ever put words on that, we feel when we're up there, yes, a a, a great beauty, a big beauty, as they would say in Zen. But we also feel a kind of sadness. And it's the place where the sadness and the beauty meet that, that gets underneath our skin, I think. you. Uh in the book, um, you talk a lot about um, how, how most of the, you talk about how most of these walks you do alone. They're solitary. Yes. I'm wondering when you're not alone, what's it like? I mean, do you ever have people that are like a bag of cats and just disruptive? And they, I mean, I, I'm thinking, as I'm reading this, I think I'd love to walk with this woman, but I think I, I have ADHD. I, I feel like I, I feel like I'd ruin the landscape. <laughs> no, 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 I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes it also it's kind of after 36 years, it's kind of like a club. So you go out at a certain time and there's other other people who are in that. So I go out in the morning. There's kind of a gang that are usually there. If my schedule's off and I go at the end of the day, it's a whole other club of people because there are people who, who love it. The, the Ashokan like me. But um, no, I love to walk there with other people. I, I find that. So when you walk in a solitary way, different things happen. You're clearing the mind. You're, you're maybe having creative insights, that sort of things. But when you walk with someone, there's another kind of magic where the conversation gets as big as that valley. And I think there's an undefendedness that happens when you're out there on the landscape and 
you're just talking and there's this, you know, the mountains and the water and you're making all kinds of connections and synthesis. So it's one of my favorite ways to be with someone is just be out there and let it, let it rip, let it roll, just let it unfold like, like the day itself. You know, I'm always interested in metaphors people use for different things. And you talk about your work as a global activist in the book as planting seeds all over the world. That's a very interesting because it's an organic, not a mechanistic metaphor. It's an interesting way to look at your work. You know, that particular entry was one of the hardest to write. It's on faith. And I talk about how when I witness in the natural world, uh, a seed is planted and I, I totally believe that that will come up if it's, if it's nurtured well, if there's rain and it gets sun and it has the proper conditions and so forth. But in my, so my, my global work is around the empowerment of women and in some of the most disenfranchised places in India, in the sex trafficking world, in Kenya, where the AIDS epidemic is still ferocious, and Afghanistan and throughout the Middle East and so forth. So these are tough places where life is as tough as it gets. And the that piece about the seeds was where I was trying to find the faith in the work that we do globally, that we plan a seed of empowerment or agency or uh, uh, any kind of helpful intervention, and that I could simply trust that that seed, again, if, if it was cultivated and it had the proper conditions, that it could grow without me worrying and you know, stressing out and trying to control it and all these, all these things that I do where, again, there's a contraction. And for me, the natural world has been one of the best places where I can learn that. I, I, I don't know it yet. I'm still learning it. I don't trust, I think, enough um, in, in, my work in the world, but I do have this great teacher when I go out into the landscape. Do you have like boundless energy? You say you're in your seventies, but I mean, you seem to be a, just a tremendously energetic person. As I read the book, I mean, you're all, I mean, you're walking, you're doing this, you're, uh, you're seven, interesting endeavors you're involved in. I mean, you, uh, are you, are you, you've got to be on the higher end of the energy spectrum. I, I guess. So, yeah. I, 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 my husband says I have two gears. I have like, if, if it was a 10-speed bicycle, I have 10th gear, which is very high energy. And then I have first gear where I just crash and burn. I, I don't have very many middle <laughs> gears. I, I, could, <laughs> I, I could really probably use some middle gears. Uh, but, well, that's partly why I need the landscape, because I am kind of speedy and, you know, high energy. The landscape cools me out, calms me down, allows the mind to empty, all, all those sorts of things. In the conclusion of the book, you, you quote Thoreau from Walden. You say, or Thoreau says, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. 
I love that. And not when I came to die, I discover that I, that I had not lived. That's such a great phrase. And, and that, I mean, this is part of the essence of, of, of the book, right? For you. I mean, you know, yeah. having a life that, that was worth living. Yeah. And I think, again, going back to your, your wonderful question about this, when we go out into the land, and again, I want to emphasize, I have a very dear friend in New York and in the city, in New York City, she read the book and she said her walks in Central Park are for her the same thing as my walks along the Ashokan Way. So it doesn't have to be a, a mountain valley. It can be a, a, a park that where one has a, has a daily encounter or weekly or whatever. But I think that this idea where we get smaller, we get right-sized, if we could say it that way, and at the same time we're enlarged. That That's a bit what Thoreau was talking about and asking us, okay, w- what is it you, you really want to live for? What is it that's important? It's kind of a, like a, 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 a sword slicing through uh, the allusion back to some of your earlier questions is all this um, technological overload um, is is that really how we want to spend our time so I think the perennial question why am I here and what is really w- worth living for is is encoded in that line well anybody that seriously considering those questions would do well to read your book, The Ashikan Way. And thanks for talking about it with me. And and I would love, if I ever get up to your neck of the woods, I would love to walk it with you. Oh, please. You you should come up. It's not that far from It's Philly. not. I'd love it because I'd like to see it through your eyes. <laughs> I would love to take you out on The Ashokan Way. You are a wonderful interviewer. Thank you for looking at the book so, so deeply and so carefully with such um, such beautiful lens. It was a great pleasure for me, wow, Scott. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Gail for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, The Ashikan Way, Landscape's Path into Consciousness. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.